Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Russia expanding their war aims, Italy gearing up for snap elections in the fall, and the EU taking steps towards gas rationing. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So, Nord Stream 1 is back online, but only at 40%. This is due to missing turbines, which haven't been installed in the pipeline, uh, slash replaced, because they replaced uh, the ones that needed to be well, replaced. Well, they haven't replaced the ones that need to be replaced with these turbines. And this is because, from my understanding, this is because of the sanctions that applied to the company, the Russian company responsible for maintaining the Nord Stream pipeline, that company is under sanction, so they're not allowed to get the turbine that is needed to make sure the pipeline works at full capacity. So Nord Stream 1 is back, but at less than half of what it used to be. And there's even rumblings now that Nord Stream 2, the second pipeline that Germany had built, but never allowed to be used because uh, it was completed and it was going through inspection right around the time the the Russo-Ukrainian war broke out. And there's rumors now that Russia has already reallocated 40% of the gas which was supposed to go through that pipeline towards their other gas supply projects, namely gas supplies to Asia. So... Nord Stream 2 is offline right now, but even if it were to be brought online, uh, the, the window of opportunity for getting the maximum value out of it is now closing, because I, I imagine the Russians are just going to keep continuously allocating more and more of their gas resources towards pipelines that are uh, you know, being used instead of pipelines that aren't. And, well, the companies are under sanctions, so they're probably not going to get the turbines they need to make Nord Stream 1 run at max capacity either. So the window for Germany to get these pipelines up and running is closing, which will put them in an even worse position for the winter, and really just a worse position overall when it comes to their energy economy for the future moving forward. Again, most of about 40% of Europe's gas comes from Russia, and that, that number varies based on where exactly you are in Europe. But it's looking like that number's going to go down, and there's nothing there to replace it, certainly not at the same prices that the Russians were offering. But, and that was before uh, they started selling at a discount, like uh, we discussed in our previous episode, where the Saudis are buying Russian oil to power their homes so they can sell the rest of their own oil at higher prices and make a bigger profit. So, Russian energy and Russian gas, uh, it's, it's very cheap, and Europe had access to it, like privileged access to it for a very long time. 
But now it seems that the privileged access is going to Asia instead. And Europe is being cut off. And, well, the Europeans have cut themselves off by way of the sanctions. And while we're hurting here in the United States too, ultimately, we can just produce more. All, I'm, I'm very serious when I say all it would take is just to give the okay to drilling on federal lands. Because all the equipment is still there. All those drill wells are still there. If we, if the Biden administration, were to say, okay, we're going to stop killing our own energy production, and we're going to allow these companies to drill on these federal lands where they were drilling before we came in. If they said that, and allowed the oil and energy companies to come back, America could be back at like, two to three dollars a gallon probably by the end of the year like it would be that fast because all all the infrastructure is already there we were already drilling this we were already drilling this and it was enough for us to be energy independent and there, there was multiple wells being opened up new wells new production was coming online at a rapid pace and it was just driving the price down here in the united states we could fix the problem we have today with a simple change of either policy by this administration or more likely just a change of administration, probably starting with Congress. And that, that'll, be the, that'll be the end of the energy problem in the United States because we have the gas, we have the coal, we have the oil. We even have nuclear if we want it. We have everything we need here in the United States. Russia's, we really don't need Russia's oil. We just created that dependency for ourselves when we killed our own energy production. So while we are in the same boat as Europe right now, and the Europeans are going along, the Europeans are ultimately going along with our policy of sanctioning Russia, we have a lifeline in terms of our own resources. The Europeans don't have that. Not unless they're willing to go for coal and nuclear. And it's it's unlikely that they do that. They, they seem very reluctant to even touch a rock of coal. And outside of France, they don't seem to like nuclear either. So th they're straight out of luck without the Russian gas, with cheap Russian energy. They're straight out of luck. We have the lifeline. We have oil. We have gas. We can bring these prices down at a moment's notice if we chose to do so. Europe doesn't have that option. They have to find suppliers, outside suppliers. They have to find sources of cheap energy outside of themselves because they just don't have it. Again, not unless they're willing to use coal and nuclear, which they're not willing to do. And even in France's case, where 70%, I finally looked up the percentage, 70% of their energy comes from nuclear, but then they're still getting smacked in the face with energy shortages because they're not getting Russian gas which is just the extra 30%. So even 30% is enough to kill you and make you freeze for the winter. So unless the Europeans are willing to dig into coal, then they've screwed themselves by going along with this American policy of sanctioning everybody that you don't like. And it's going to be really rough this winter for Europe. Really rough. Uh, there's also extra speculation that Russia no longer intends on supplying anywhere near as much gas to Europe in the future that it used to.
They're, again, Russia's shifting its gas portfolio towards Asia, where there's uh, just about half the population of the human, the human species between China and India alone. So they're not gonna, they're not going to be in want of a customer. They have plenty just in China alone, let alone India. Let alone if a pipeline would be built to say Africa or something like that. Oh my goodness. Africa has another billion people on it. Russia has plenty of places it can go to supply people with its oil and its gas that isn't Europe. And the United States has its own gas and oil. So it is Europe who will be the biggest losers here. And the Russians? Well, their economy hasn't died and the mother of all sanctions failed. So now they just get stronger. Meanwhile, Tunisia has voted on a new constitution. Uh, so we'll see how this pans out for them, especially given the, the tensions in North Africa with Morocco, Algeria, and with Libya being in a civil war. Egypt buying up weapons like crazy for some purpose, maybe just military modernization, but maybe it could be something different. So we'll just, we'll just keep our eyes out. Uh, when then there's also tensions with regards to the eastern Mediterranean, which have cooled down for now. But I don't think Turkey's given up on that, so I imagine the Turks will be back. There's a whole lot going on in North Africa, so we'll see how this new constitution pans out for Tunisia. Uh, the EU has sued the UK over the North Ireland Protocol Bill, uh, and this is a bill in the UK where they're able to change their own customs laws and policies regarding Ireland, uh, which includes increasing, you know, uh, customs and checks and all regulations and whatnot, or decreasing them. And that's the, that's the real kicker here, because if they decrease checks, uh, if they decrease border, uh, I was about to say border patrols, if they decrease the number of barriers and security protocols that you need to go from Northern Ireland, to, which is part of the UK, to the rest of the UK, then essentially what you have is anything from the UK can go into Northern Ireland and then into Ireland itself because of a very long-standing treaty that's basically mandates that the border between North Ireland and Ireland has to be free for people to move and travel between. Uh, it started off with the Belfast Agreement, and then when uh, it sort of got submerged within the EU, when Britain, uh, the UK that is, and Ireland were both a part of the EU, it was sort of an internal border anyway. But then when the UK left, they had the Northern Ireland Protocol, so now we have this North Ireland Protocol bill a couple of years later and essentially the North Ireland protocol England well the UK you know they have five million names for themselves uh, <laughs> the UK basically treated North Ireland which is a part of the UK they treated it as though it was a separate country with their checks and customs and so that you could have freedom of movement between the two islands but it wouldn't you know impact the EU border so to speak because Ireland is a part of the is still a part of the EU even though the UK is not so to get around that issue 
instead of having a hard border between North Ireland and Ireland, the UK basically said, okay, we're going to keep that open and North Ireland's going to function as though it was a part of the EU, you know, in terms of moving, free movement of peoples, and we'll just do the checks and the customs going from North Ireland to the UK and vice versa. But what this bill allows them to do is it allows them to lessen those restrictions and let Northern Ireland function as though it was a part of the country that it's a part of, which is the UK. But what that does is it takes the the free movement of peoples and puts it on Ted. Not that it stops that free movement of peoples, but it, it reverses the dynamic to where the UK was essentially ceding a part of its own land to the EU to now, if the UK just has free movement of peoples and trade between itself and its own piece of land in Ireland, and then you combine that with the free movement of peoples and goods between North Ireland and Ireland itself, well, now you have a, a block in the British Isles where there's free movement of peoples. And that's where the problem comes in for the EU, because if that's what happens... Well, then the EU has two choices. They can either impose a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland and break the Belfast Agreement themselves. And by creating that hard border between the two islands, or they do what the UK did, which is where they allow Ireland to have the free movement of peoples and goods between Ireland and North Ireland, but they have to pull back their customs and their trade restrictions to goods coming from Ireland and going to the EU, which effectively separates Ireland from the EU and puts it into the British orbit instead of EU orbit. So that's sort of the, the geopolitics here, and it's actually a pretty smart thing that the British can do if they chose to do so. They haven't quite done it yet, but they can. And it would basically steal Ireland away from the EU. And probably they should have done this from the get-go with a hard Brexit, but everyone was afraid of a hard Brexit. So Brexit is coming full circle and is coming to a, a complete exit from the EU with uh, this move towards free movement of peoples and not catering to the EU's interest by cutting yourself off from your own country, which is what the UK was doing. This creating tensions. We'll see what comes from that. But the EU is now suing the UK over this and the policies. Ukraine and Russia have, in a, mo in a fit of de-escalation, they've allowed Ukrainian grain to flow via the Black Sea to the rest of the world. And Turkey is set to monitor these shipments. So as a side note, we can observe that Turkey has become yet more important as this conflict has continued. And is still, still likely to continue becoming yet even more important than it already has become. Because I, I imagine that the powers that they are giving themselves over this will eventually apply to other countries as well. In the event that they control other waters. So Turkey's become quite the significant player. Not just on the... Russo-Ukrainian side of things, but in the NATO side of things. I mean, they basically made Finland and Sweden kowtow to Turkey's interests just to become a part of NATO. 
Turkey is they're they're on the rise. And at the very least, in terms of geostrategic importance, they're just smack dab in the middle of everything. Everything, everywhere has to go by Turkey to go anywhere. Everything has to go through Turkey to go anywhere. And that's a pretty important thing. I mean, it's part of the reason the Ottoman Empire was as powerful financially as it was. The Silk Road went through Ottoman territory to get to Europe. Especially after they conquered Egypt. So you can imagine what a modern day Turkey, after a, a, either a union or a, a formal conquest of Egypt, would look like. That'd be a super duper power. <laughs> oh my goodness, no. They, they would be a, a really strong country if they were to do that. I don't know how they would get to that point. Uh, don't ask me how. But if they did, they'd be incredibly powerful. Uh, and uh, another side note, the Ukrainians had to demine, so they had to clear out a lot of the mines that they had placed in the waters uh, by Odessa so that their wheat and grain could actually go through with this agreement. And I have a f strong feeling that that's eventually going to backfire on them because the Russians are not going to stop with the Donbass. They're not going to stop with the lands east of the Dnieper. That's my opinion. And I've come to be right on a lot of these opinions of mine. Uh, sometimes in ways I expect, sometimes in ways I genuinely didn't expect. But I look forward to being right again. I imagine the Ukrainians don't look forward to me being right, but I do. Anyway, we have... What do we got? What do we got? We got 50 million people. Goodness. 50 million people uh, are in danger of starvation, as per the estimates of an, uh, a collection of East African countries who basically did a survey and uh, a study to see how many people were in danger. 50 million people is their estimate. And that's just East Africa. We're probably talking upwards of 100 million in danger of starvation in across all of Africa as a continent by itself, not counting anybody in Asia, not counting anybody in the Middle East. Uh, this is, it's looking pretty bad. It's looking pretty bad. The global famine, it hasn't hit yet, but it's looking like it's going to be bad. So we'll, we'll see what this agreement between Russia and Ukraine does in terms of alleviating that. Uh, Iran has plans to phase out the U.S. dollar, particularly in its trade between it and Russia. You know, I imagine that's going to involve a whole lot more rubles, which will boost up the value of the Russian currency. Egypt is getting a new power plant, which is also being built by the Russians. So it seems that the Russians are making it a point to show to the world the benefits of not sanctioning Russia in comparison to what happens when you sanction Russia. So, uh... A sort of symbolic victory here for them in this broader proxy war between them and the West. You have unrest in Karakalpakstan, which is a region in Uzbekistan, over their autonomous status being revoked. So there's been unrest for the past couple uh, weeks. Uh, Iraq has accused Turkey of being responsible for an attack on Iraqi Kurdistan, which is basically northwestern Iraq. That left nine people dead. And I guess this is part of their operation. Although they, they were supposed to be going into northern Syria. But I guess when your target is the Kurds. 
northern Syria and northwest Iraq. Oh, who can who can tell these days? Those silly Kurds. Countries are for kids. Uh, <laughs> I'd imagine that's the general sentiment in Turkey. But nine people dead in this attack, and tensions raised between Turkey and Iraq. We'll see what comes of that. Although I don't imagine Iraq's in much of a position to do much, aside from tell Iran about it. And then there's the U.S. saying that any Russian annexation of Ukraine will be challenged. Uh, now, whether that is military, foreign aid, or simply not recognizing Russia's gains as being Russian territory, like we did with Crimea, it is unknown, but we'll figure that out as time goes on. But we'll get more into Russia and the war in just a second. Alright, and we're back to get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start by talking about Russia. Now, just a, a moment ago, I said that the U.S. Uh, will challenge any Russian annexation of Ukraine. And again, whether this means challenging it through foreign aid or challenging it by simply not recognizing Russia's gains... We don't know. I imagine we'll find out, but we don't know. Because as it stands, I suppose continuing the aid to Ukraine is technically challenging Russia's annexation. But if Russia wins the war and there's no more Ukraine to funnel money to, well, how do you challenge Russia's gains at that point? Do you do you just send in an envoy to the Ukrainian government uh, walking into what is then Russian lands and having a diplomatic protest when he gets locked up for trespassing? I'm not sure. Uh, it's very, very vague. Probably because no one actually wants to do anything about Russia. But people are unwilling to leave Russia alone at the same time. It's Honestly, quite frustrating to watch, uh, listening to people talk about the need to do something about Russia, but at the same time, we don't want to actually get involved in the Ukrainian war, but we want to give some aid to Ukraine. Uh, Russia, the, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's a dictator, uh, so we're just going to ignore all these Nazis in Ukraine. It, it's a very strange situation we found ourselves in. But I'll maintain my stance, which is that isolationism is the one true ideology, and that you will not catch me out here supporting Nazis because you did not like Putin. That's my stance. And I invite you to join me. It's a very wonderful stance to take, you know, having this thousand-mile-high view of everything else going on below us. <laughs> but yeah, no. It's strange, especially seeing people who genuinely, uh, or at the very least, supposedly, are genuinely opposed to intervention uh, in this or that place, openly advocate for intervention. People who say they don't like to be world, the world police, openly advocating being the world police, as long as it's to contain either Russia or to contain China. I don't understand how you can maintain those two positions at once. I see them as mutually exclusive. Uh, if you're not going to be the world police, well, that would include policing Russia and policing China. Maybe, uh, maybe I just have too much common sense, or 
maybe I'm missing something. I'll go with the... I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but enough about me. We're going to talk about Russia. Because last week, Russia stated that their war aims have expanded beyond the Donbass region in Ukraine. Which is uh, eastern Ukraine. Like bad. Uh, specifically, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, he said that, quote, The geography is different now. It is not only about... Uh, it is not only the... Oh, goodness. What a... A trapping of my own words. He says, quote, The geography is different now. It is not only about the DNR and LNR, but also the Kherson region, the Zaporizhia region, and a number of other territories, end quote. So, that's quite the statement. Well, I'll dig into it in a little bit. We have a couple more. Uh, he says, quote, We cannot allow the part of Ukraine that President Zelensky will control, or whoever replaces him, to have weapons that will pose a threat to our country, our territory, and the territory of those republics that have been declared. Uh, goodness. So, he's saying... He doesn't want Zelensky, or whoever comes after Zelensky, he doesn't want the part of Ukraine that they control to have weapons who will pose a threat to either Russia or the rebel republics. Uh, the, the quote was a bit weird, so I flubbed it quite hard, even though it's plain English and I've written it in my notes, but I um, uh, just simplified it so that people who didn't understand what I said when I fucked it up... Uh, understand what he actually said. Alright, so... He's saying this. He's talking about these other regions outside the Donbass. And he's talking about how whatever's left of Ukraine when the war is over, they cannot be able to threaten either Russia or the rebel republics. Now, he also dismissed the possibility of resuming peace talks. Uh, saying that it doesn't make sense to do that at the time. And he blames the Ukrainians for not negotiating in earnest back when they were talking. And this was back in, I believe, March or April. Back when they were talking, there was no meaningful negotiation from the other side, from his perspective. And this is Sergei Lavrov of Russia. From his perspective, the Ukrainians were not serious. And quite frankly... Uh, they weren't. They, they were trying to get time for more we uh, Western weapons and Western training and Western aid. And the United States and UK didn't want Ukraine to make peace either. And America in particular wanted the war to go on. And this is part of this idea that we're going to turn Ukraine into a, a quagmire for Russia. And they're gonna, it's going to bleed them dry like a, a, another Afghanistan for Russia. That that's the idea. I don't think it's going to pan out that way, primarily because I, I don't think there's going to be a partisan war when this is over, and I don't think the Russians are going to lose so many people in the conventional war that it'll the victory will have the effect that people think it's going to have. Although many believe that the Ukrainians are going to hold out long enough to do that, I still cast much doubt on the Ukrainians. But. He's talking about these things. Uh, the, he's talking about the regions outside the Donbass. He's talking about how Ukraine can't be allowed to threaten anything that is Russian. 
and he there's not going to be peace talks. So from these statements, we can take a number of things from them. Which first and foremost that the, is that the war is going to go on. The war shall go on, and this is also him likely hinting at the beginning of phase three. Because once they have the Donbass taken completely, well, now you have to get to those other war aims uh, in the Kherson region, the Zaporizhia region. You have to go beyond. You have to go beyond the Donbass. And if phase two is about securing the Donbass and establishing a, a land bridge to Crimea, as we've been told that that's what phase two is about, well, they have the land bridge. Uh, Mariupol is down. Azovstal is down. The Donbass republics have almost been completely, well, from the Russian perspective, liberated, uh, but we'll just say taken, have almost been entirely taken from the Ukrainian military. The, the Ukrainian military has been almost completely ejected from the Donbass region. So once that's a, that objective is completed, I imagine we're going to move into phase three. And that's what it appears, that, that's what Sergey Lavrov appears to be hinting at here when he talks of these other regions outside of the Donbass. Now, uh, while the Kherson region refers directly to the oblast, and when I say oblast, you can probably fill that in with, like, a state, if you're from America. Uh, that, that's sort of how they break up. It's sort of the internal divisions of Russia and Ukraine. They call it oblast. Here in America, we would call it, uh, like, a state, or maybe a county. But... The Zapri, not the Zapri, the Kherson region, that refers directly to the oblast, which is directly north of the Crimean Peninsula, and it commands the Dnieper River Delta, and therefore it also controls Crimea's fresh water supply. So, of course, they're going to hold on to that. The Zaporizhia region, however, is a little different. Because the Zaporizhia region can either mean the oblast, again the state or county, it can either mean the oblast, which is between the Donetsk People's Republic and the Kherson oblast, again this will be referring to the land bridge to Crimea, if we're going strictly off the oblasts here. But referring to the Zaporizhia region, he can also be implying taking the broader geographical expression of Zaporizhia, which would include large swaths of central Ukraine. And we're talking really, depending on what map you're looking at, we're talking uh, like a, a really big chunk that sort of bites into central Ukraine and crosses the river multiple times, or straight up taking everything, <laughs> a whole third of Ukraine, the middle third of Ukraine, uh, so that's a pretty big difference uh, from the oblast to central Ukraine to a whole third of Ukraine, depending on which geographic expression and map you're looking at for the geographic expression of Zaporizhia. If he's referring to the oblast, it's just the land bridge to Crimea, and they'll probably continue on to Transnistria. If it's the geographic expression... He's basically saying he, we're, we're going to eat up the entirety of Ukraine. Like, it's, it's that big. The, the geographic expression is that big.
We'll have to see which one they go for. Although, again, it's my opinion, Ukraine's probably not going to exist when this war is over. And it's going to be broken up into multiple parts, which will themselves be just internal, maybe self-governing regions within Russia. But, again, it could just mean the oblast. And Russia's goals are much more limited. But if it's if it's the second option, then Russia is uh, specifically Sergei Lavrov, their foreign minister. They would be essentially admitting that their goal is the annexation of Ukraine as a whole. Because once you have that much of Ukraine, and there would only be the western portions of Ukraine left, depending on which map you go off of. At that point, you may as well just finish the job. Because now you have a, a weakened Ukrainian state that has been attacked by you who will now have every incentive to join NATO for its own survival not just because of benefits but for its own survival uh, this is a country that has a history of ignoring treaties like it did with the 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 Minsk agreements it ignored the Minsk agreements for multiple years even though it signed on to them it ignored that treaty so why would they honor another treaty with you? If they're willing to break the first treaty, what makes you think that they won't be willing to break another treaty, even if that treaty bars them legally from joining NATO? What's going to stop them from trying to integrate with NATO and walking that line? Oh, we're going to we're going to have military integration with NATO. Or they'll just say, oh, it's not with NATO, it's with the United States. Oh, we're integrating with Poland. Oh, we're integrating with Slovakia. And just getting all the excess weapons they have from NATO as a part of it. Ukraine has proven it is not trustworthy when it comes to treaties. Russia has no reason to trust that Ukraine is going to honor whatever treaty Ukraine signs with Russia. Even if they were to stop the war right now and sign a treaty. Russia has no reason to believe that Ukraine is going to honor that treaty. And if Ukraine is defeated decisively militarily, or, well, regardless of if they're defeated, if they sign the treaty now, they have every incentive to join NATO because they've been attacked by Russia. And if they are defeated decisively, which I believe they will be in time, then they'll have an even greater need to join NATO. Now, it won't be a matter of, oh, we want to join NATO. No, it's going to be a matter of, we need to join NATO. And depending on how much land the Russians take off of them, the Russians will have taken all of the pro-Russian parts of Ukraine, which will only leave the pro-Western, pro-NATO Ukrainian nationalists. They'll be the only ones left, depending on the parts of Ukraine that Russia takes. So you're going to have a radical swing in favor of joining NATO as well, as the need to do so becomes greater. So the only, and again, if Russia's true to its war aims of wanting to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, well, and, and if, again, if it's also true that Ukraine being a part of NATO is a national security threat to Russia, which it would be fair to say, since NATO is an inherently anti-Russian organization well then the only way this ends is with the total annexation of Ukraine 
you can't leave a rump state Ukraine. They'll just integrate with or straight up join NATO or be, get some U.S. defense guarantee. Now they have American weapons on their soil. And the security threat is still there. Uh, unless you take all of Ukraine, you can't denazify Ukraine. And the Nazis are still going to be there. If you don't take all of Ukraine, if you don't destroy the Ukrainian military, well, they, their military is still going to be there. And if they join or integrate with NATO, then they're going to get all, all the weapons, all these weapon systems, all this ammunition, all these guns, all this money, just like they're getting right now. Just like they're getting right now. So if demilitarization is a true war aim, and the Russians are being honest about that, well, they cannot stop now. Ukraine is more armed and more heavily armed than they've ever been. They would have to continue the war. And if Ukraine is defeated, and they slip into NATO after the fact, and they start rearming, well, now you... the. It, there's just no way this ends. Based on the war aims that Russia has put forward, if we assume that they're telling the truth, now some of you just straight up don't believe the Russians. Just, and I'll be honest, I, I'm heavily biased against the Ukrainians myself. <laughs> so, all is fair in love and war. But, uh, so far, the Russians are more honest about their goals than other folks, like the Ukrainians, uh, so far, but if we're uh, if we are to assume that those war goals are true, then there is no way for the war to end in any other way. Ukraine has to be annexed. Russia's security concerns, as they have laid them out, and as the and combined with the events that have unfolded, the only way this ends if is, is if Ukraine ceases to exist as a nation. Preferably by Russian annexation, because they get annexed by someone else. Well, now that someone else is just a part of the security threat instead of Ukraine. Because the only other people there are NATO members, with the exception of what, Belarus, Moldova. Those are the only other two people. The only other two countries that wouldn't be a part of NATO in the event that Ukraine got annexed by someone else. The only way this ends, based on the war aims that Russia has put forward, based on their justification for war, the only way this can end and all of those strategic and security concerns can be addressed is for Ukraine to be annexed completely by the Russians. So that, that's my primary reason, my primary belief that the war will go on until Ukraine doesn't exist anymore. Until they become a geographic expression synonymous with Western Russia. That, that, that's why I keep going on about how I believe the Russians are going to keep going. I believe the Russians are going to win. I believe that there won't be a negotiated settlement. That's why. Based on Russia's own war aims, that's the only way this can end. So, maybe I'm wrong in... Um, I imagine that if you, you if you are Ukrainian, you're hoping and praying that I'm super duper dead wrong, and perhaps I am. Uh, I'll tell I'll tell you when I'm wrong. But the Russians are expanding their their war aims. Well, technically not expanding their war aims, but they're 
expanding what they're admitting to be their war aims. They're, they're now talking about going beyond the Donbass. That's going to mean the land bridge to Crimea. They're going to keep going. And I've said it before. If the longer the Russians have to fight, the farther the Russians have to march into Ukraine before Ukraine surrenders, the less likely it is that Ukraine is going to get that land back. And now we're starting to see that. We're, we're really starting to see that. The Russians are digging in to the land they've already taken, and now they're looking beyond that. This is probably going to be phase three. The land bridge to Transnistria, and probably taking as much land uh, east of the Dnieper as they can. Or perhaps that'll be phase four. Uh, the Russians will make this nice, slow, and painful, but once they get past the Donbass, it's flatland. That's tank country. That's armored column country. And the Ukrainian infrastructure is being destroyed as we speak. They're bombing railroads now. So we will see what comes of this. But I think this ends in Ukraine being annexed. Just based off of Russia's own war aims. And looking at what they're talking about now with the Zaporizhia region, that could mean anything from the Oblast to about a third of Ukraine. So we'll see which definition they go off of, because that can be pretty vague. And another thing we can take away from this is that Russia is indeed committed to the demilitarization of Ukraine. Uh, specifically, the we can't allow weapons to threaten our territory or the territory of the Donbass republics. Well, uh, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to put this in a a, a way that's uh, easy enough to understand because uh, uh, I'm really just trying to get over my my own tongue tiedness because uh, I'm reading this and I'm just baffled by the implications at least as I'm interpreting them. The implications, as I'm interpreting them, are really, really bad for the Ukrainians. Because uh, they say, we can't allow the Ukrainians to have weapons that could threaten our territory. Well, anybody with a modern military can technically threaten Russian territory. Tanks, a, a, a jet fighter, a, a bomber or two, maybe a paratrooper brigade, that, that can threaten Russia. A, a missile that can go more than 10 inches can threaten Russia. Uh, uh, if Ukraine has a modern military that can threaten Russia. So, I mean, honestly, anything above a handgun could be a threat to Russia and the Donbass territory. Especially if you're, throwing, if you're talking about missiles and, again, fighters and tanks or armored columns uh, or even just a paratrooper. Paratrooper brigades. Men with speed boats could go up and down the rivers in, in Ukraine and they could be a threat to Russia. This is so vague. It's so vague that it leaves open so much for the Russians to interpret as a threat. Now, again, the Russians have been much more honest about their goals and war aims than anybody could have expected them to be. Uh, but even this, it's just so vague. Literally anything above a, a Glock could be a threat to Russian territory. 
If you have a rifle, up oh, you, you can shoot down multiple men at once. Oh, you're a threat to our territory. You have a 50 cal machine gun, you're a threat. You put that thing on our border, you can you can light up our civilians like no tomorrow. You have what what's that? You have an artillery piece? Oh no, 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 no. Now you can blow up people in our, our territory. You're a threat. You literally anything above a handgun can be classified as a threat. This is essentially them committing to the demilitarization of Ukraine. Because again, if anything above a handgun is a threat to Russia, and you're not going to tolerate threats to Russia's territory, well, you'd have to take away Ukraine's military altogether. They'd have to have nothing but batons. They'd, uh, uh, overgrown police force is what they'd have to be when this is over. Heck, uh, I'd be surprised if the Ukrainian military is allowed to have tasers when this is over. And that's assuming the Ukrainians are still alive. As a state, that is. They're going. This is demilitarization. This is straight up demilitarization. They're they're just saying it now. Uh, in case anyone wasn't listening before, this is the demilitarization of Ukraine. And the more territory that Russia integrates, I'll also add, the more territory that they integrate, the farther that line of Russian territory that they're not going to allow you to threaten. The more territory Russia integrates, the farther outwards that line goes and outwards towards whatever's left of Ukraine. So it, it's not like this gets easier for the Ukrainians. Like, if Russia's territory stayed where it is, which it's not going to, then Russia and, and Ukraine was just everything west of the Dnieper minus Odessa and their Black Sea coast. Well, now you're talking about Maybe, okay, we don't threaten Russia directly, and the Donbass republics are decently far enough away to where we can't threaten them. But if Russia, every, if, 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 goodness, if everything Russia takes beyond the Donbass goes straight into Russia itself, or maybe they make another republic, which they're also going to add to this list, mind you. I don't imagine they'll just accept weapons in Ukraine that can threaten whatever new republics Russia makes out of Ukrainian territory but if everything Russia takes beyond the Donbass just becomes a part of Russia well now everything Ukraine has is in range of Russian territory again everything above a handgun which means Ukraine just isn't allowed to have a military at all well I guess that that's what demilitarization means but again reading between the lines here this is them essentially saying that we're going to take this country and you're not allowed to have you're not going to have a military and if you're not going to have a military you cannot be a country you cannot be a country if you don't have a military if you don't have something especially a modern military the i guess the russians are going to be your military now but if the russian military is your military then guess what you're a part of russia that's what it looks like we're heading towards with ukraine just going off these statements made by Sergei Lavrov. I mean, it. that's what I'm looking at here. That's my opinion. And that's the way I'm looking at this. And again, it is my opinion that the only way they can achieve such an audacious goal of demilitarization here in Ukraine is making sure that this part of Ukraine, which is going to be under Zelensky's control, the only way they can make sure that, that doesn't have weapons that can threaten Russia is by making sure that there is no part of Ukraine under Zelensky's control. If it's all under Russia's control, then it can't be a threat to Russia. Now, can it? That's where I think this is going to go. And that's going to be uh, 
incredibly, incredibly petty to watch as they move along with this. But hey, at least you'll have, you'll have gotten the news from here first, right? Uh, who else is telling you these facts, these straight-up facts about this war? Not many, although I have discovered a, a guy, uh, Scott Ritter. His channel got... <laughs> His channel got, like, banned for two weeks the day I found him. I, I was watching his stuff on my way to go pick up my car. I was in the shop. And I'm like, wow, this guy's telling the truth. I, I subscribed immediately. Wow, this is some pretty good analysis. Wow, it's not just one-sided. He's really breaking it down in the intelligence aspect. What the impact of all the weapons and money that we're giving to Ukraine is actually having on the battlefield. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's going to be enough to win against Russia. But because it kills Russians, it does have an effect, particularly on the battlefield and on Russia's battle plans. When you lose a commander, it messes with your plans, because that commander was responsible for doing certain tasks. He also talked about uh, more in-depth the danger of all the weapons we're giving to Ukraine, which are just disappearing on the black market, and how it only takes one stinger missile, one javelin, to destroy a presidential uh, cavalcade. You know how when the president visits places or when world leaders visit places, they have like a, a I was about to say a, a funeral procession, but not a funeral procession, but they have like a a whole a whole a convoy. There we go. That that's the word I'm looking for. They have like a whole convoy. One javelin missile could blow that up and kill a president, kill a whole world leader. And some of the weapons we're sending to Ukraine are being sold. Uh, I believe. There is even an instance where one of the HIMARS we've given to them, which is the new hot topic of your, you know, Western military aid that we're giving to the Ukrainians. There is a HIMARS that literally got sold to the Russians by a Ukrainian official in the Ukrainian government. They sold it to this country they're at war with. And I'm just like, wow, this is insane. But he, 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 he's, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. I looked him up. Uh, I didn't look him up. Oh, uh, I found him. I was listening to his live stream. Went to go get my car. Got back in my car. Rode home listening to something else. When I get home, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to listen to that Scott Ritter guy. Whole channel down. <laughs> so then I had to look him up. And I found him again. <laughs> but pretty good. Pretty good. I, I have to take every scrap of quality information I can. Because goodness, it is hard to come by. But hey, it just means that I'm able to provide more quality news to you here on this little podcast of mine. Even if you hate me for it. But, at the very least, you'll know I'm being honest with you. And isn't that what matters in the end? The more you know. But now we're going to move on to Italy. Because, uh, and well, we're only going to talk about Italy for just a little bit. Uh, there's, It's really just a matter of watching how this plays out. But... The Italian president, Sergio Mattarella, uh, has accepted Mario Draghi's resignation from his position as prime minister. So, we talked a little bit in previous episodes about how M Mario Draghi tried to resign, but the Italian president wouldn't let him. Now the Italian president has allowed him to resign. <laughs> and this sort of dissolved the parliament in the process. So now Italy is set for a general election on the 25th of September. I imagine many of the hardliners who were who came out against Russia and were in favor of the sanctions and in favor of giving aid to Ukraine 
I imagine many of them are going to get booted out of office. But, more interesting than that, which is probably to be expected, it'll be interesting to see which factions and which people replace them. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of stance is taken in regards to the war in Ukraine. Because, from what I can tell, there are, at least going off of American politics here, the opposition politics are they're still in favor of supporting Ukraine. They just don't think we should be supporting Ukraine to the degree that we are. They're not they're not quite as based as your lovely podcast hosts over here. Where uh, if it were me, yeah, they, they. <laughs> if it were me, the Ukrainians wouldn't be getting anything at all. They could beg, but they wouldn't get it. My weapons are from my military. I'm very stingy like that. Unless I'm playing Civ Five, in which case... In which case, I'd do exactly what we're doing in Ukraine, but Ukrainians would be winning. That's <laughs> that's the difference. But uh, they're saying a game of Civ Five, and the Ukrainians are apparently only slightly as good as the city-states are in that game. Goodness. But my weapons and my troops are for my country, not yours. So... I guess I'd be the final boss in that situation. Except they lose because I'm cheating. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Italian opposition parties handle this. Because over here in America, the opposition, again, is in favor of supporting Ukraine, just not to the extent that we are. There's not, not enough of us isolationists in the mainstream. But, uh, mainly that's because they... The main reason... That, that the opposition here, and that's the Republicans, the Republican Party, they're more interested in getting into the exact same situation with regards to Ukraine. Just they want to replace Ukraine with Taiwan. And they want to, then they want to send weapons, then they want to send aid and troops and money. That that's what they want. And so, of course, your lovely neighborhood isolationist has to say no to them too. But uh what can you do? So it'll be interesting to see what Italy's opposition says and does about this war. Will they be similar to the opposition here in America? Or will they go farther? Will they take like a, a hard line in the opposite direction and reject involvement in the war? Or will they just water down what Italy's already doing? I don't imagine they have a, a China they'd like to go fight. Nah. Uh, quite honestly, I don't know what exactly we're expecting the Europeans to do against China. Uh, when people talk about Cold War 2.0, none of them have a navy, except for the British, and only just barely in their case. So what exactly we're expecting the Europeans to do to China, I have no clue. But I can guarantee you, none of them are, none of them are going to be willing to sanction China. Not a single one of them are going to be willing to sanction China, Germany especially. And honestly, even if they did, I'm not entirely sure it would have anywhere near the effect that we think it's going to have on the Chinese. Uh, but maybe it will. Maybe uh, uh, The Russians are much more insulated, their economy, than the Chinese are. But the Chinese economy is ridiculously huge. In fact, some metrics put it above our own. If we're going off of purchasing power parity, it is larger than our own here in the United States. Which would make them quite the important trade partner to have. I don't think Europe will has, has it in them to sanction China. Not in a, a way that they're actually going to enforce. Not in a way that's going to be, like, real and actually do something. 
But maybe they will. I mean, I didn't think the Russians were going to go into Ukraine back in February. Uh, I didn't think that that was going to be the moment that they did it. I knew that they had... I knew that they had wrapped things up in Central Asia. I knew that they'd wrapped things up in the Caucasus. And this was sort of the only next step they could go to before dealing with the Baltics. I I didn't think they were going to do it back in February. I'll be honest with you. But they did. Uh, I, I remember I, in one of my episodes, I'm like, oh, the invasion date passed. And there was no invasion. Oh, I guess there's a whole lot of egg on their face. And then the, the Russians went in like <laughs> that week. But... But we were all, everyone was caught up in the news about the invasion, so I was able to just uh, very quietly sweep that one under the rug. But it'll be interesting to see how the Italian opposition parties respond to this. Because I don't imagine the current coalition is going to come back together to deal with this, as they wouldn't have fallen apart if they were. But that's Italy. And now we're going to talk about the EU. Because the EU is doing something interesting and sad. Uh, the, the implications of what they're doing is sad for the EU. But it's an interesting proposal, nonetheless, coming out from no, none other than Ursula von der Leyen, with the head of the European Commission. Because what she proposed was that every EU member voluntarily cut their gas consumption by 15%, in preparation for the event of potentially being completely cut off from Russian gas. She also intended for that uh, she also intended that the saved gas uh, would be pulled into like this common European emergency gas reserve that could be shipped around to different parts of Europe in the winter. And this reserve is supposed to be for Europe-wide emergencies, like winter. And then there's also plans to make that vo- completely voluntary, 15% cut. There, there's plans to make that mandatory. So, just just to throw that out there. That's sad. That, I mean, I, I can joke about how poorly I think the EU is. Uh, when it comes to behaving as a, an institution, yeah, I can I can shit on them all day, as the new Byzantium, always in the shadow of what they used to be, but never quite Rome. Uh, I I can talk trash, geopolitical trash about them all day and night, and I do, and I will, I will continue to do so, <laughs> but. gas cuts, completely voluntary, until it's not. So that we can have gas in reserve for emergencies, Europe-wide emergencies, mind you. And there's one emergency I see coming up, which is winter. Europe is not ready for winter. And that's just a fact. They're not ready for winter. Nord Stream 2 is losing the gas that it was supposed to have by the second. The Russians are reallocating it. If the if it was to be opened right now, Nord Stream two, it would only have about sixty percent of the volume going through it because the Russians reallocated around forty percent, or so the rumors say. Nord Stream one is only at forty percent because the turbines cannot get to those Russian companies because Germany sanctioned them and Canada sanctioned them. I believe the turbines are in Canada, but they they can't go to Russia. 
because of the sanctions. So the gas isn't flowing. Europe is starving for gas, and now they're, they're already trying to ration it, while also s silently centralizing this power into the hands of the EU, mind you. It's, this winter is going to be a catastrophe. Like, I know I bring it up every episode. But every week, it seems like the looming storm just gets worse. It just gets worse. And no one's willing to say, hey, maybe we should stop sanctioning the Russians. Hey, maybe we should come to the table. Hey, maybe, maybe we should cut our losses. Maybe Ukraine isn't worth it. Maybe this non-NATO country, who we have no defense guarantees to and are not in an alliance with, is not worth economic suicide. Every week the problem gets worse. And the solution's right there. It's Russia. <laughs> but the problem gets worse every week. Because these leaders don't want to say yes to Rus Russian gas. They, they just don't want to do it. And again, they're going along with the American policy here. I mean, we're, we're supposed to believe that the West is just this one collective thing. And while it's acting that way right now, it was not a collective thing when Trump was in office. America was going in its own direction. And that direction had oil. <laughs> that direction had gas at $2 a gallon nationwide as the average, unless you were in California. That direction had economic growth. That direction had manufacturing coming into the country, growing manufacturing base. That direction had warm homes in winter. The direction we're going right now is freezing to death during the winter. But again, the United States has everything it needs to bail itself out of the out of this hole. We have everything we need to get out. The Europeans do not. The Europeans are not in that position. They cannot. They quite frankly, even if they went to coal power, I brought up if they were willing to use coal and nuclear even if they were willing to use coal power, they don't have the infrastructure to build up coal power that much. They don't have the mines. They don't have... The, too much of their stuff runs off of different energy sources, like their trains. They, they've gone away from that infrastructure. They've gone away from a coal-based infrastructure. Coal is a, Coal is a positive feedback loop you can use coal to produce yet more coal, and then you can use coal to power things. Like, power things, and then you can have an economy based on coal. And that's how Europe used to function. Before oil. But oil is just that much more potent, and it was it was very, really, really powerful as a hydrocarbon energy source. It was more energy dense than coal. But countries that couldn't get oil stuck to coal, because it's what they had. And it gave them energy security. Europe moved away from that after World War II. They don't have the infrastructure to go back fast enough to save them from the winter. Now, could they build that infrastructure in one, two, three years? 
Maybe they they could start getting close. If you're France, you definitely can. You only have thirty percent of your energy grid to make up for. I say only thirty, and that's still a big percent. But at the very least, it's only thirty, and not upwards of sixty. In certain countries, no. At least it's not. You're not Germany, where you have all this, all these solar panels and all these wind turbines that are not going to get the job done. It's, it's, it's sad. And I firmly believe that the, this winter, we're going to watch the green agenda die. We're going to watch the green agenda die this winter. And it's crazy to even say that. I, I know I've said it multiple times, but it's crazy to even say or think about that. But I genuinely think that's what we're going to watch this winter. And we're starting to see the, the chickens come home to roost. All the sanctions, all the, the economic warfare on Russia, it's starting to come home to roost. 50 million people in East Africa alone are now in danger of starvation. Europe is going to freeze to death this winter. It's crazy. But they're, they're talking about this 15% gas cut, which is voluntary, but there's already plans to make it mandatory, so it's what's the point in even saying it's voluntary? If you're just going to make it mandatory, right after you announce that it exists. It's insane. Maybe it's necessary. I don't know. I'm not European. I won't tell you what you need to do. I can give you a suggestion. But ultimately, my worldview is centered around America. But this uh, this talk of a 15% gas cut for this European emergency gas reserve prompted a response out of Spain and Portugal. A very interesting uh, set of countries here. Usually, you don't hear from them at all. But this got them to speak. And what they said was pretty interesting. The two countries basically gave the EU a grievance list, uh, stating that they, one, don't use a whole lot of Russian gas, two, that Germany and Italy use disproportionately more Russian gas than they do, and three, that their energy sectors aren't very integrated with the rest of Europe. They can't, they don't have the infrastructure to move gas in the other direct, towards the rest of Europe. They're not integrated in that way. So, this gas ration would dis essentially what they're saying is that the gas ration will disproportionately benefit countries like Germany and Italy, who's because if they use up more of the gas, then they're going to be the ones who suffer more from the gas shortage. And if there's an EU wide gas issue, then the countries that need it the most are going to be the countries that were most dependent on that gas. Which means, really, you're just taking 15% of everyone else's gas and giving it to Germany and Italy. Because they use it the most. That's what they're implying here. Uh, Teresa Ribera, which is Spain's uh, ecological transition minister, she stated that, quote, We will defend European values, but we won't accept a sacrifice regarding an issue that we have not even been allowed to give our opinion on, end quote. 
She also says that, quote, no matter what happens, Spanish families won't suffer cuts to gas or to the electricity to their homes, end quote. So right off the bat, Spain's out. And again, I just mentioned how you don't really hear from Spain and Portugal much. She basically said, this is your idea. These sanctions were your idea. We didn't even get a say on it. And now you want us to suffer with you the consequences of your actions. We're not, And then immediately after that says, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And Joao Galamba of Portugal, the, which is Portugal's Minister of Environment and Energy, he said that the proposed measure is irrational and disproportionate, again, because Germany and Italy use up more gas than everyone. So you're going to take everyone else's gas, and then when the crisis comes, it's going to go inevitably to the countries that use up more gas. Germany, Italy. So right off the bat, the entire Iberian Peninsula is out. They're, they're disconnected. There's a, and here we go. Again, I, I talk about the perpetual secession crisis of the EU. I haven't brought it up recently. I've just been watching how things have unfolded. But I've m mentioned multiple times in the past where Britain leaving sets the precedent that leaving is an option. And from there, the EU just struggles to keep everyone in. What happens if they get hit with this gas crisis and countries who don't use up much Russian gas like that are forced to cut their gas consumption by 15%? Because, again, it's voluntary right now, but there's already talk of making it mandatory. And there was already talk of how we cannot allow national vetoes to get in the way of our security policy. We talked about Olaf Scholz talking about that a couple weeks ago. The EU is heading towards a fork in the road where they're either going more centralization or dissolution, really. But the greater centralization, the, the, the more they try to do the centralization path, the more countries who don't want that are going to be forced in the opposite direction, which is the dissolution of the EU. And the two forces can't mix. They just can't. Either you subordinate yourself to the EU, or you're eventually just going to have to leave, because the EU is pushing towards all of its members being subordinate. As is, again, exemplified by the completely voluntary, until it's not, 15% cut. What happens if there... I say if. What happens when winter comes around? And all these countries who would depend on Russian gas get smacked in the face. Iberia is not. Spain and Portugal, they weren't very dependent on Russian gas. This isn't their problem. But they have to sacrifice 15% of their gas to go to Germany and Italy. Because the rest of the EU decided to sanction Russia. The EU decided to sanction Russia. And now the EU reaps the consequences of doing that. But Spain has to pay. But Portugal has to pay. They didn't even get a say. What do you think that does? It's going to make people angry. It's going to make people not like the EU very much. Especially if the crisis is bad. And they start... And this is just a start, mind you. 15% gas cut. What happens if they increase the cut? The mandatory cut? Because you know how the EU likes those environmental... They like the green agenda. They say, hey, this is a great way to cut back on carbon. 
why don't we just increase the amount that we stop using? Oh, wow. Now the 15% becomes 18. 18 becomes 20. 23, 25. To the point you, you just can't have a modern economy anymore. Now that sounds radical, but you, you look at some of the other things that these green agenda advocates are advocating for, uh, just short of socialism, and you see it's not entirely as radical as it may sound. But what do you think policies like these do? Let, let, before we even get into the speculation of how far that can go, what do you think policies like this are going to do when said crisis finally happens, which I believe is just code word for the winter? Spain and Portugal have to pay for Germany and Italy's mistake. That, that's what it's basically going to boil down to. And I imagine a lot of the smaller states in Europe are going to feel the same way. We're paying for your fuck-up. And Germany is going to be like, well, we bailed you out during the crisis, the financial crisis in 2008, so suck it up. Now we need your help. You needed our help, now, you need our, now we need your help. Pitch in. This is going to be a disaster. This is going to be a disaster. This winter is going to be a disaster for Europe. I don't... Will the EU survive? Will NATO survive? There's a strong chance that they do, but it start, the possibility that they don't comes into view when you really think about the crisis that we're about to go through. And it's self-inflicted. The self-inflicted aspect of it is what is perhaps the most dangerous part about it. If you're NATO or you, you created the problem, which means you are the problem. And if NATO and the EU are the problem, then getting rid of them becomes the solution. And that's crazy to think about. But hey, I didn't think I'd be talking about the death of the green agenda. Not in my lifetime, anyway. But we will see. Uh, I I do hope that, that Europe can pull out of the tailspin. Uh, but I, I don't think it's politically acceptable for them to do so. That they'd have to embrace Russia. They'd, they'd have to say, we're sorry. They'd have to stop trying to sanction Russia. They would have to open themselves up to trade with Russia. But I don't, I don't see them doing it. I really don't. So, we just, they deal with the consequences of that action. And then once the midterms are over, the U.S. is going to bail itself out of its own problem. And the EU, who went along with us on this really, really bad adventure, is left holding the bag. Because we can produce oil. Europe can't. That's crazy. I am... At a loss for words. I, I I'm I I'm I don't know what to say. Europe is in a, a really really bad position. Uh, well, maybe not Spain and Portugal specifically, but the rest of Europe looks like they have their hands full. Russia is the answer. But the question that we're gonna have to watch for, maybe with all the fall of all these different governments. 
and the need to reform new governments because the parliamentary system, maybe this will provide the change necessary, the change of batter necessary to course correct. And we can see countries do things that make sense for their energy policies at the very least. But will they is the question. And I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. Oh, but that, my friends, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Europe is on a track to freeze. And it looks like we're going to be watching that together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.